0: Marriage. So right now, think about when you were young, do you remember marri- thinking about who you were going to marry or maybe dreaming about what they were going to be like or were you worrying about how you were going to find that person? Well, I was dating, I remember imagining what it would be like if I married the girl that I happened to be going out with. And with the exception of the last one, it caused me to break up with all the rest of them. (laughs) Because there's something, you want the one you marry to be the one. You want there to be a fit there. Who you're going to marry is such a huge decision in your life. For those of us who are married, we recognize that the person we marry shapes us into who we have become. They influence where we end up living, what our family looks like, how financially secure we are. Essentially, our entire life is completely tied to that person's interests and desires and abilities. And so it's no wonder that so many young people are so consumed with finding the right one. And to do that, they are so genius, they turn to apps that let you filter on such important things as height, and smile, and attractiveness. Because those are apparently the most important thing when you're looking for your future spouse. But what I always ask my boys, who aren't the dating age, 21 and 24, is about the one and only requirement that God gives us for who you're supposed to marry. And that is, does she share your faith? That's the important question here. You see, in the Old Testament, God gave his chosen people, the Israelites, One rule about who they are to marry, and that is that it is to be somebody from within their own people. He specifically prohibits them from marrying those outside of their people based on the basis that these foreign nations worshipped different gods. And they had a different faith. And so he didn't want his Israelites who have this covenant relationship with him to marry into relationship with other women who have relationship with other gods. And he set that guideline because he knew that sharing such an intimate bond with someone who believed in different gods would always lead their hearts astray. And when you read through the pages of the Old Testament, you see this exact thing play out time and time again. As the men of Israel would go after the Canaanite women or or after any of the other women in the area, their hearts would always tend to gravitate away from God and towards the gods and the idols of the wives whom they married. And even now in the book of Malachi, which we're going to be getting to here in a moment, if you want to open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, we're in the last book of the Old Testament and in this series. And what we're seeing is that the Israelites are still grappling with this issue. And so, as we're picking up in verse 10 today, what we've seen of chapter 2, up to this point, God first has this question with them. They're saying, God, how have you loved us? And God's showing them how He has made them His covenant people, how He's been faithful to them, how He's provided for them. And then in the next portion, at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, He said, but you're not holding up your end of the bargain because you have dishonored me with these inferior sacrifices that you keep bringing to the temple. And now here, as we get to chapter 2, verse 10 of Malachi, we come to another complaint God has about them in a way, the way that they have been unfaithful. This, the word unfaithful actually appears in our passage today five different times. So I'm going to begin reading Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. In the NIV it says, Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors? By being unfaithful to one another. Judah, that's one of the 12 tribes representative of Israel. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Do you notice the strong language here used to describe this profane, unfaithful, detestable desecration of the sanctuary? As we're reading through this language, I'm expecting to hear God charge them with something heinous, evil, and vile. And He does. And it's that they have broken His law of who they are to marry, and have chosen wives who worship foreign gods. And the fact that our modern day ears don't think this is that big of a deal says a whole lot more about us than it does about God. That we think, what's the big deal if I happen to be a Christian and I marry somebody who's not a Christian? So what? They're a really good person, And God's saying, no, what happens when you marry somebody who's not a Christian so often is not that they become a Christian, but that you slowly let your values and beliefs fade. And ultimately, you then raise your children in a house, and often you don't bring them to church, and they end up not being one to follow your same faith. That was God's concern here. That's why God said, Cut them off from the tent of Jacob. I don't want them to be a part of this family because he understands if they marry foreign wives, not only does he allow their idol worship into that man's own home with he and his wife, but then they have children, and those children will likely be raised with those idols and other gods. And like yeast that spreads throughout all the dough, they're going to have an impact on their community. The kids that their children play with, they're going to talk about that. The daughters that their sons are going to marry are going to be influenced by that. And God says, I don't want that. Cut them off. Set them out from the tent of Jacob. He's unwilling to let this impurity, this offense spread throughout his people. So he orders them to be put away. The cancer must be removed before it spreads. And like so many of Malachi's teachings, it appears at first glance that this is a teaching really for the Israelites to marry within the people of Israel. We're not Jewish, most of us, so this rule of marrying somebody who is Jewish doesn't apply to us directly in the same way. But like all these principles that we've looked up to this point, it is extended in the New Testament to us. What we see is the Apostle Paul who's working with Christians who are Gentiles. There are all sorts of nationalities who aren't Jewish. He says, no, this still matters. And he gives them the principle. He says that you should not be unequally yoked. And I have to add here, Being unequally yoked has nothing to do with eggs. I've said this before to teenagers and they asked me later what this had to do with eggs. And I said, oh, you missed the point. So a yoke, if you don't know, is the big wooden bar that would go between the shoulders of two oxen to plow a field in the olden days. And they'd put the rod in between and the plow would go between the two oxen. But if you put two oxen of different strength together, an old strong one and a young one, you invariably would not be able to plow a straight line as the two were not matched evenly. And that point is the point that Paul's making. He says, you need to find somebody to marry that you are matched with. That you share the same faith with. That you have the same values of. Because then your decision making as a family is going to be so much easier. So, if you're in the dating world today, this is the requirement that God is still giving you. He doesn't really care about your future spouse's height, attractiveness, or earning potential. Those are up to you. Those are things you get to decide and work out. But God desires that you not be unequally yoked because He understands that this has by far the greatest impact on on your future happiness in being married to this person. What they believe is going to have an enormous implication on your entire future. Knowing that they share your desire to base all decisions on how Jesus wants you to base your decisions is going to bring you to into alignment. And it's going to give you the best chance at success in your marriage. Is it going to guarantee a happy, lifelong marriage? No. There's lots of stuff that happens. Those of us who have been married for any amount of time, we realize marriage is hard. But it sets a foundation that gives you the best chance. And so that's why God says, this is what I want for you. This is what's best for you. I hope all you teenagers in the room have heard what I've just said. If who you marry is going to be one of the biggest decisions of your life then you really should take God's one rule to heart anything less will not only cause you grief in the practical issues of how you spend your money and your time but more important like the israelites it may lead you to shipwreck your own faith and the faith of your future children and no pretty face is worth that so now we turn our attention to the second part of our passage today and the place which stirs up the most contention, and that is beginning in verse 13 of Malachi chapter 2. We read these words. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because He no longer looks with favor on your offerings, or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to Him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. So this section begins by God pointing out that they don't even realize what they've done to upset God so much. He describes how they're going to the altar of the temple and they're weeping, they're wailing, and they are wondering why God is failing to bless them in the way that they expect. They're like, God, we're bringing you these sacrifices. We're doing everything that you want us to do. But there's something there that they know He's not accepting their sacrifices. So God spells it out clearly. And so his first complaint with the Israelites was that they were unfaithful to him by marrying women who he told them not to marry. And now he logs a second complaint. The men are being unfaithful to their wives by seeking to divorce them and end their marriage covenants. And God reminds them that this covenant they made is not just between the husband and the wife. But there's a third strand to that marriage. God says that He was a witness to that marriage, to that promise that they made to one another. These covenants, the way they were made back in their time, they didn't have written formal documents that they could photocopy and put in file cabinets. So what they did, whenever they had a contract or a negotiation, they always had witnesses to observe the agreement. Often, that's what the role of the elders who are out by the city gate, who are by the city gate all day long. If you had to make an agreement with somebody, you'd go to the city gate and the elders would be the witnesses to make it official. God is saying, when husband and wife come together to be made one, to become a marriage and family unit, God acts as the witness To say, I was there. I saw when you made those vows. I heard your commitments to one another. You can't just lightly disregard this marriage covenant. You can't just say that, oh, this can be undone. I'm going to go chase grass that's greener on the other side. And that's what these Israelite men were doing to their wives. They were making a mess of their families and hurting their children. And now we come to one of the most discussed and challenged passages in the Bible. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. I'm going to read it in the NIV translation, which was revised in 2011, which I normally use. It says this, The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Now I'm sure some of you see how this verse is a bit different than how you were raised with hearing this verse. And the Bible translation that I just read, we see it's the man who hates and divorces his wife. So it's a husband who is doing the act of hating. And the object of the hate is, is his wife. And he proves that out by the fact that he divorces her. He actually hurts her, harms her, and does violence to her. Because in their day, there was no concept of an empowered single woman who is just living on her own. That's not how it worked. Women had to be under the covering of a man. That's why when we get to John chapter 6, Jesus talks to the woman at the well who's been married five times and the man she's currently living with isn't even her husband. It's not really a charge against her for being this adulterous woman who's running around. It's a picture of a woman who keeps being rejected by men. And even now she still has to be under the headship of one who won't even marry her. So this isn't a charge really against the women. It's the charge against the men. Because they're the ones who have the ability to divorce. They're the ones who have that authority to say, you know what? I want somebody else, somebody younger, prettier, able to give me children. And so they're rejecting their wives. They're running from them. They hate and divorce their wives, causing violence to themselves. Now, however, let's look at some other translations. One many of you are probably more familiar with. King James Version came out in 1611, says, for the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. Then in the new King James that came out in 1779, it simplifies some of that language to our English vernacular. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, that Verb there is really sending away or putting away, but we understand it's the concept of divorce. Then the NIV 1984 version, the one that was printed for so long up until 2011, rephrased it. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. You can see this is a second way of translating this verse. One which many of you probably trust more. With this translation, we see it is the Lord who hates And what he hates is not a person, but the act of divorce. And now before I say anything more about this verse, I simply want to show you why so many people who love the Bible and want to translate it the best and fairest way can't come to consensus. So here's a quick grammar lesson. Some of you can turn this off. The Hebrew words, if you go through this, it's three Hebrew words. If hates divorce says the Lord God Almighty. All those words in Hebrew are there. But it's if hates divorce. The verb for hates is in the third person. So it's inferring he hates or she hates. If he hates or she hates. And so that's why when you look at the King James Version, it actually flips the two phrases. And it says the Lord, the God of Israel, he hates to keep the he hates together. But it flipped the order. The NIV Says, I hate divorce because it's clearly the meaning is God hates it, but that does not match what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew is not I hate, it's He hates. Then you get to the verb uh, divorce, and that is in the infinitive form. I don't know what that means, so I Googled it. Okay? The first entry that comes up says, if a verb is in the infinitive form, typically it's acting as a Uh, description of the first verb. And a good way to use it is to put the word by in front of it and add I-N-G. So it's by verbing. So it'd be, he hates by divorcing. Does that make sense? A man hates by divorcing. That's how he proves his hate. That's how the NIV 2011 gets to where it gets to. And so I understand some people look at the new NIV translation and they point to it as a verse they don't trust. Because look, it changed it from God hating divorce to if a man hates and divorces his wife. And so some people think the committee, the translation committee went too liberal or they allowed culture to shape what they were trying to do. So they instead trust newer, more conservative translations. And I know one that many people trust and like to read from is the ESV translation. And that came out in the year 2001. And it is a very conservative translation. But let's look at what the ESV did. They also said, For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel. So this isn't an issue of some translators being unfaithful to the text, or some trying to be more liberal, or trying to appease culture. It truly is a very complicated passage of Hebrew, okay? And that's why some people fall to one side and some people fall to the other. And wherever you land, it's not a hill worth dying on. Because at the end of the day, what we have to understand is that here's the bottom line of this passage. So if you turned off the grammar lesson, listen up again, okay? I want you to wake back up. Here's what God is trying to convey with this passage, regardless of how you prefer to translate this verse. And it is this marriage is a special commitment made between a man and a woman with God as the witness. It's not to be entered into lightly, and it is never best when the covenant of marriage is broken through divorce. I think all of us can agree. Divorce is never best. Even if you've gone through divorce, it's a painful, challenging process that you probably wish you hadn't had to go through. It's not God's best for your life. Especially in this situation where men are leaving the wives of their youth for possibly superficial reasons. God's saying, that's not okay. You can't do that. You can't leave her high and dry and just go chase the next best thing. You need to show that you are a person of integrity, that you are faithful to the wife of your youth. And God, So God's calling them out on it. He's letting them know that this wife that they're looking to divorce is like a piece of their own body. And when they divorce their wife, they're doing violence to her and by extension to themselves. So He tells them twice, Be on your guard. Don't be unfaithful. And now I understand, it's impossible for me to go through this passage here today without it raising tons of questions in each of your minds. For those of you who've been divorced, perhaps you're wondering what our stance here at First Baptist is on divorce. And also, what about remarriage? There's so many questions and there's so little time to dig into it. But I want to give you a brief summary While the Bible is clear that divorce is never God's ideal, and he may in fact hate it, I'll leave room, that absolutely could be the right description, that God hates divorce in the same way he hated Esau. He rejected Esau, he rejects our sin. But we also see that God carves out these exceptions in Scripture for divorce. Moses codified divorce in the law for the Israelites and how it had to be handled so that men weren't just willy-nilly divorcing their wives and letting them hang out single and without somebody to protect and watch over them. At the end of the book of Ezra, Ezra comes back to Jerusalem after the exile to Babylon and he finds that the priests had all married foreign women. And he weeps and he laments and he goes to God in prayer and says, what should we do? And they decide that these men need to send away, which means to divorce their wives and their children and to separate from them. That's what God leads them to make that decision. When we get to the New Testament, both Jesus and Paul give exceptions for when divorce is acceptable, specifically in the cases of adultery and Uh, when the person leaves you, abandonment. And so, should anybody ever enter into a marriage thinking that they can always just get a divorce if it doesn't work out? Absolutely not. I think we all understand that. That's setting yourself up for failure and proving yourself to be an unfaithful person. And God doesn't want that for you. But as Christians, we have to recognize that Jesus always offered grace to sinners. So often, divorce has been held up as this major sin. And church positions and roles have been withheld from people because at some point in your past, you were divorced. And so for the rest of your life, that acts as a burden. It holds you back from being able to do what other Christians can do in the church. For others... This verse out of Malachi has perhaps been used as a club to beat you up. God hates divorce. You can't do that. That's out of line. It's never acceptable. And so we can read Scripture very black and white, and yes, divorce is never best. It is absolutely not God's ideal. He wants people who are faithful. But we also have to understand God wants hearts that are tender to Him and are trying to follow Him. He absolutely doesn't want people getting divorced. He hates divorce, possibly. He hates all sin. He rejects all sin. And He also offers forgiveness to everybody who comes to Him and comes to the mercy seat and God says, God, I have definitely not lived a perfect life and I need Your grace and I need Your mercy. I need Your forgiveness. He's not going to look at this one sin of missing the mark. Sin just means to miss the mark and say, you know what? But you did that. I can't forgive that. That's not the God that I worship. That's not the God that I read about in the pages of Scripture. He understands going through a divorce is so harmful and hurtful and shame-filled. And sometimes the church is added on to that, which isn't great. As a church, we need to walk people through. It's very nuanced. Even in Scripture, in the New Testament, you see there's these exceptions and people fight about, well, how do they play out? And we have to allow a little bit of grace there for people. And understand, hopefully nobody's saying, oh, no big deal, we'll just do it lightly, I want to move on to bigger and better. If somebody's saying that, I'm absolutely saying, you have no grounds for divorce. Remain faithful to the wife of your youth. So in saying all this, if your marriage is a struggle, I encourage you to do everything you can to work on it and to improve it and to build it back. To make it the best that you can. And sometimes your partner might not be willing to work on it with you and if that's the case, that's okay. You can still work on it from your side of the equation. You can say, God, help me to look more like you. Help me to grow in my maturity. Help me To be faithful, even when things are really, really hard. And if you find yourself in an unsafe marriage, always seek safety first. That's important. It's sad that as pastors we have to say that, but seek safety first and then seek wise counsel to help you decide your next steps. Marriage is a challenging thing. God wants marriages that stand the test of time. Nobody is debating that. He designed and instituted marriage. He gave the guidance that the Israelites must marry within other Israelites. And Paul extended that and said, look, Christians need to marry Christians. You need to marry somebody with the same value structure. Marriage is hard, but that gives you the best foundation. God gave us this wisdom because He wants us to set up our marriages and our families for this Success and for faithfulness to one another and to Him. And He rightly gets angry when people that He's in a covenant with prove to be unfaithful. So He tells us how to choose our marriage partner. And He challenges us to find ways to remain faithful to that person, even when times are challenging to look at greener grass somewhere else. He wants us to be His faithful bride prove our faithfulness with our commitment to our marriage covenants. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray?